Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good this season. They're located online at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe. Cafe.com. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. The music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. So today we are bringing you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive. One of them is a brand new story, which is pretty exciting. The first one, that new one, is titled Shocking, and the second is titled Assimilating to a New Culture. So, Al, I'll hand it off to you. Why did you pair these two stories together? Well, they're both new stories. Ayo. By the same storyteller. Oh, sweet. So this is an interview that was done in 2015, and it's been waiting patiently (laughs) to be edited. And we happen to have a consultant editor that is doing some editing work for us. So he was able to... um, We have actually five stories from this storyteller. We are only listening to two today. I mostly wanted to play them just because they haven't been heard before. And they'll be new to us. And also the storyteller, as we will hear, was born and raised in Afghanistan. Not for very long in his particular life, but his parents definitely were. Um, And so I thought, given that Afghanistan has been recently um, in our minds and hearts, that it would be be good to bring someone forward from from that time or from that place, even though his own experience as a refugee is from quite a while ago. So, yeah, all right. I think that's why. Should I go ahead and play the first? Yeah, let's story? go ahead and play it. So this first one is titled "Shocking." It's actually difficult a little bit because I mean I was born in Afghanistan. I mean, I was probably two years old, probably not maybe even less than that, probably, when my parents fled because of the, the Soviet invasion. Uh, and I grew up a little bit in Pakistan, so I remember going to, I think, up to third grade in Pakistan. And I've lived most of my life here in Atlanta, Georgia. Not, not here, but in, in Atlanta, in the United States. Uh, so I've grown up most of my life here. But Pakistan, I did grow up in there, and uh, we lived in a very small house, uh, probably the back skirts or the outskirts sorry the outskirts of the of uh, Peshawar that's where we lived we uh, my parents and my brothers which three brothers and myself we all slept we all slept in one uh, room which was also a living room and a dining room and everything and actually when my parents first came to Pakistan and I was a very little child uh, they had to live in that one room with I think two or three families so it was packed in there as well uh, and I, I mean, I think one of the greatest things I remember, not the greatest things, but one of the strongest memories of Pakistan is the heat. It was very hot in there. Uh, and sometimes during the afternoons when the sun would go down, my mom would uh, throw water onto the, we had a small courtyard as well, very small. Uh, and she would throw water on that and my brothers and I would play in there as well. So I remember that, that's very vivid. In Atlanta, I think the biggest shock for me was the fact that there were more rooms in, in, in an apartment, and you know, we didn't call it apartments. I didn't even know what that was, and obviously because I wasn't speaking English at the time either. Uh, but in Atlanta, we had more rooms, but still my brothers and I shared one room for quite a long time until we started growing up and we moved. 
Uh, I think one of the things that I remember best about my childhood in Atlanta is uh, the fact that there were school buses. Yeah, you couldn't walk to the supermarket as you could in Afghanistan. I mean, in Pakistan, where my dad also had a, had a store. He was a tailor, uh, and so we would go to his store sometimes and just uh, you know hang out, my brothers and I. Uh, but in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, that wasn't possible. So we had to you know we had to find ways of getting there. A lot of times we just walked because we didn't have transportation. We were so much used to walking places, so we just walked there. So I mean, that, that's some of the things I really remember that stay with me. And I, and I actually enjoy those memories. I grew up in Clarkston, and that's, a, I think, a haven for most refugee families that come in. Uh, a lot of them are put in there, uh, so it's full of refugees. Uh, there are very few, uh, I suppose you can say, native families, American families. It's a very, uh, I, I would say it's a little bit underdeveloped. It's not as, as well developed as some of the other towns, but then, you know, it's, it's not run by what I would call Americans. It's probably run by probably refugees as well, educated refugees, not the same refugees that usually just come in, obviously, but uh, but that, I mean, that it's, it's a small town. There, I think there's one or two soccer fields there. It's very small markets, supermarkets, uh, not, not uh, what I would imagine a lot of towns are like. I've, I've never, I had never heard of what African-Americans were. I didn't know that there were such a people as who had black skin. I mean, it's shocking. Uh, I think I, I never met anyone that, who wasn't an Afghan. Uh, very few Pakistanis, even in Peshawar, and that's because we lived in a very small uh, part of Peshawar, which was called Afghan Colony. So there were a lot of Afghans there, and we and I grew up with my. We even went to an Afghan school. And I think my parents were very conscious of uh, making sure that we were around our own people. And this is uh, something that is true of most people, I think, in the Middle East or even in Africa as well. That uh, people tend to uh, be around their own type. They don't want to, you know, mix with other people. Uh, so when I came to Clarkston, the fact that I was meeting people of different races and I had to speak English, it was not, I couldn't speak Persian or, or, or Dari, which I did, which was uh, the official language. And so I think that was probably beneficial for me because as I grew up, I learned to speak English better. And so I speak as well today because I was around people that, you know, I was forced to speak English with them. And my soccer coach made it a rule never to speak your own language. You know, whatever you do, you have to speak English. And so through that, I think I learned it. That's one of the benefits of, of being around uh, people of different races, uh, although we use the same language. But, I mean, I think it was a good experience as well. Uh, I, rem I, I mean, I know some of my parents, some of their thoughts are very, you know, racist sometimes. So I think being exposed to that helped me get through that. So I never really faced the same challenges that my parents probably did because they, didn't, they weren't forced to speak English all the time, and I was. So I think that was something I got out of that. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And this is WVLP 103.1 FM and streaming online at WVLP.org. Uh, so today we have pulled an interview out of our archive, but the story is newly edited by Nick Ledeau, and uh, shout out to him for his work for the project. Um, and it's at our website, welcomeproject.valpo.edu. And um, over the next couple of weeks, the other stories from 
this storyteller's interview will get posted to our site too. So if you get interested in um, his insights, his wisdom, his experience, then you can look forward to seeing more of his stories appear on our website. So Regan Willow, first impressions, what stands out from his story? He's been a lot of places. So he was born in Afghanistan, and then he said at two years old, they fled because of Soviet invasion, and then he grew up a little bit in Pakistan, and then he went to Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. So he's been a lot of places. <laughs> he's been a lot of places, absolutely. Something that's definitely sticking out in this moment is, again, I always love to skip to the end, sorry, <laughs> but the the conversation around, like, this, it sounds just based off of the tone that the speaker is speaking with, like, and I'm having this feeling so I might be projecting onto the speaker but that complicated relationship of like having to speak English Mm -hmm. or like being forced to speak English in like a certain setting and like I am a white person and I am like monolingual I've never I'm trying to learn Spanish Uh, it's slow going (laughs) I have never been in in a superposition where I need to be fluent in more than one language as like an English like or english-speaking white american um but i understand and i've read a lot of things about people who i understand to the extent that i can folks that do come from a culture that is not monolingual or is not american or it isn't inherently english-speaking and that difficulty of maintaining uh, such an important like tether to their culture uh, especially children of immigrants Mm -hmm. like having that difficulty of like not being as fluent as their parents or their parents not being able or having the time to teach them like their language as well as English. So I'm, I'm already having complicated feelings. <laughs> because you're assuming that there's something taken away from the child by being, by having English enforced. Just knowing that that is definitely a potential and a relatively common experience. Like having that knowledge and moving forward and having, seeing how this person is like navigating that particular experience. I mean, it's interesting to me because in this particular story, at least, I had to speak English is not because I was made to speak English. Like if we're thinking about some of the drama around Spanish, mm-hmm. like at, in, in like border states, you know, for example, where it would make a lot of sense for schools to be bilingual and because communities are already bilingual. Mm-hmm. I hear him at least saying that he's living with so many other refugees that all speak different languages and so the only common language they're going to be able to communicate with is English Mm -hmm. and in fact in this case that is the bridge to diversity Mm -hmm. which enabled the storyteller to Mm -hmm. it sounds like get away from racism that his parents Mm -hmm. have not had challenged because they're still inhabiting a world of seeing people who look different or who are from different countries as less than. Mm-hmm. So it, I think in my estimation so far, at least his story sort of upends some of our progressive benchmarks or rulers around this, this conversation. So it's, it seems like he complicates it, what yeah. we're used to. Thank you. Yeah, the only person he mentions, I mean, I'm sure he had to in school just because 
American school as a whole. And again, he's in Georgia and he talks about being around Atlanta. Yeah. So maybe there are more resources there, especially he talks about coming from a specific, it sounded to me like a town outside of Atlanta, but near Atlanta, yes. which a lot of cities have that kind yes. of situation. It sounded like he grew up in like a pocket of refugees also from the Middle East that's close to Atlanta. So maybe they had like better resources and he did get to have more of a bilingual experience in school. But most American schools are not equipped for that in any way, shape yeah. or form. Um, the only person he talks about like making him speak English is his soccer coach. Yes, but, and I don't know how many people will be remembering the Fugees. The soccer coach came to talk at MLK Day I don't remember if it was 2016 here at Valpo, and she is the soccer coach that he's referring to, and that whole team was made up of refugees from these different um, countries that had been brought into America, and then in some ways, her, her way of telling the story is like balkanized, you know, like all the refugees are put into this in this case, Clarkston, yeah. the small city that he seems to say is under-resourced, and so it's her her enforcement is a way of trying to build community across those differences that I think, I don't know, it's been a while since I read the book that um, some of the differences around the countries were sources of conflict in, mm-hmm. in the city. And so the boys, uh, I think it was only boys on the team, had to overcome that in some form or fashion. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it is complicated because it's, yeah. it's this outside requirement upon you that obviously shapes his identity and self um in other stories it pulls him away from his parents and his parents worldview in some cases that's a good thing like Mm -hmm. leaving behind racism but in other cases i think that can also be a loss you know which i think is what you're pointing at too yeah it does also I saw a TikTok about this, and it was a joke. It was just a quick one-off joke thing. But America as a whole, and I'm sure other countries have, there's a lot, from what I understand, a lot of other countries have kind of designated immigrant neighborhoods. Or like, yeah. yeah. And like, if you're fancy and from like a white English-speaking place, often those places are called expat, expatriate neighborhoods. (laughs) But it's an immigrant neighborhood. And other countries have these as well, as far as I'm aware. So I know it's not just America, but there was somebody joking about how even big cities in the Midwest are diverse, but maybe not as diverse as one might think. And joking about how there is no like Chinatown, Koreatown, uh, Japantown, that kind of thing. They're just, it's one big chunk called like Asia Town or whatever in your particular, or they'll use one nationality and chunk everybody together mm-hmm. of whatever that nationality is. And like, people and groups of people and ethnic groups that have had like problems and conflicts for thousands of years are just shoved together in this one mm-hmm. spot because oh you're asian oh you're african oh you're middle eastern we'll just it's fine you'll all go here isn't that wonderful mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think the other piece of that that's positive for immigrants is if you're i guess i'm thinking not of like the pulling together Japanese, Korean, and Chinese and calling them all the same. I'm thinking more of like what he's talking about here where when his family was in Pakistan, they were in Afghan town. Mm -hmm. And so then in Clarkston, they're staying in their Afghan neighborhoods. And the parents are appreciating that for making sure that their children are around people who have their culture Mm -hmm. and their cultural values. And that 
that kind of segregation is also allowing for affiliation Mm -hmm. within the group. And so Mm -hmm. there's a desire for that, which I think the storyteller comments on when he says that that seems like something typical. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's typical, not just of refugees, it's typical of Americans too. It reminds me of, of Gary when we've talked about, you know, Eastern Europeans who were recruited to the mills too. And then you have a Polish neighborhood and you have a Slovenian neighborhood and you have a Italian neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, they each have their church, right? It might even be a neighborhood. It might just be a block or a section of a neighborhood. And there's something that is tribal about that that could be prohibitive of a city becoming inclusive or related to each other. But there's also this benefit of mm-hmm. being able to preserve culture so it seems like this both and yeah and Willa we haven't let you (laughs) (laughs) let you talk in quite a while so um I don't do you want to yeah 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 yeah. so okay so when I think about like assimilating I always think of that word as like really pejorative yeah um so like and I don't know, I think he brings a different take on this and that like, I'm thinking specifically in the soccer group where he's mixing with people of other races and they have to use English to sort of bridge them together. I wonder if there's an element there, like the the part that makes it less icky is that it's like there isn't this sort of like, or what from what I understand from his story, there isn't like a large like white American population that is also there. And I think that might sort of be key. Like, I think, like, if this were, like, Valparaiso, and obviously he would be, like, a huge minority here, but, like, you know, it's, like, there's something about also having that sort of, like, white culture around you that forces that assimilation, that does it in such a way that it sort of, like, I would assume that it sort of asks you to sort of lay aside some of your culture and not only speak English, but then start to adopt other practices and sort of... You know, sort of like move away from the identity that you were born into and then move more towards white culture. And so I think what's interesting here is that I don't necessarily hear that. It's like, oh, we're all sort of here in this town in Georgia, Clarkston, together. And, you know, English is not, it's literally the way of communicating and it's not necessarily, like there isn't like a power enforcing there. I mean, I don't know what the soccer coach is like, but you know what I mean? So I think there's like that element can sort of like, differentiate it from like what assimilation might look like for an Afghan person in Valparaiso versus in this majority refugee town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is WVLP LP 103.1 FM and this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And today we are talking about refugee experience from the perspective of a storyteller whose um, roots are in Afghanistan, but mostly he grew up here in Atlanta or around Atlanta and Clarkston. That was making me think something, and now, because I did the station, (laughs) (laughs) I've forgotten what it was. It had something to do with the earlier part of his story. Maybe I was just thinking about what what would it be like to grow up in a town oh I know that he was saying it seems like Clarkston is run by refugees Mm -hmm. not native peoples Mm -hmm. which I think is funny that that's the word for white Americans in his mind right which is like his experience um and 
I, I, he's not very explicit about it. He says it's probably refugees who have been in America for longer. But I, I did wonder then, like, how many white people did live in Clarkston. Yeah. It almost sounds like you're thinking, Willow, that it's very, very few. And and I don't know if you're in such a small town as Clarkston, like, does that, do you mostly experience your life there? Or because it's so close to Atlanta, is there mm-hmm. this kind of more, like, encounter with a bigger culture. I mean, I guess I would think like there's lots of people probably in Valparaiso who never even go into Chicago. So Mm -hmm. maybe not. Maybe you do stay. Maybe you do stay in Clarkston. And what might that be like if there's a town that was built to help refugees be reestablished or be established in America? But I cannot help but think he doesn't know this. He doesn't talk about this in the story. So I'm projecting that Clarkston as the city for refugees is a kind of not in my backyard for mm. other neighborhoods yeah. or other cities. That's normally how neighborhoods of particular ethnicities and like races and nationalities become a thing. Because it's not. Because we don't, a, we don't a, want a, to integrate you yeah, here. Yeah, it's a so. not in my backyard. City. Like most of the time, like not all the time, but like even then when we talk about like Polish, Irish neighborhoods, like people also, especially back in the day, did not like Polish and Irish people either. I That's mean, why they got shoved into the corner. Like, yeah, like even today, isn't that part of like Valpo's strategy is like, well, we're not going to build affordable housing here. We'll wait until Portage does it. That way, the people who need it go to Portage and not in Valparaiso. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, but like, no, no, yeah, that's. 100%. I mean, we are trying to make connections between what our storytellers bring up and our own experiences here. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I want to be careful because I, I know the three of us have a pretty strong critical lens on some of these issues, and, and rightfully so. I also find it very helpful to be hearing from the perspective of someone who's come up in this community to really, I, I want to respect how positive his experience is. And I think we'll hear that in other stories, too. And not that it's uncomplicated, especially as it relates to family. But I think it's really helpful for me as a progressive who often gets stuck on the look at how people are being discriminated and, uh, in, you know, displaced or forced into situations. In this case, it sounds like under-resourced, which reminds me like of probably what happened, well, what did happen in Gary with the black community. So the black neighborhood there for Central District, Central District, District had a lot of value for the black community in the sense that they, like we've heard storytellers talk about, I lived with lawyers, I lived with doctors, mm-hmm. I lived mm-hmm. with teachers, I lived with fire um, station police officers, mill workers. And if you're in Roosevelt, uh, the all-black school, you're with black teachers who love and appreciate you and aren't questioning your ability because of your skin color. So there's all of that positive (laughs) that comes out of that, even at the same time that those neighborhoods are disenfranchised and under-resourced. So like, and we often tend to focus on that. I'm talking about the three of us here in this room, or maybe just me. I don't, I mean, at least me. And I, I really feel like I have to learn to pay attention to the resources and the ways that people make their lives in those conditions that have nothing to do with, you know, systemic racism. And 
we can call it out and we need to call it out, but we don't want to forget that life is far richer and <laughs> than uh, systemic racism can even reach. I mean, well, speaking of that, like he even talks about my favorite part of this story, actually, is when he calls out the um, that like in Afghanistan or Pakistan, he could walk to the supermarket and his dad had a store and he was so surprised when he like came here that like you couldn't mm-hmm. it's like so car dependent and I'm like oh my gosh <laughs> like, <laughs> I just I just love that idea like you know and I think so many Americans would think like too like oh you're coming white Americans I should say you're like oh you're coming to America it's like oh it's so amazing here and it's mm-hmm. better than you've ever experienced before but in reality it's like okay you could be in a suburb and you can't even access like, yeah, I think stuff around you. Isn't Atlanta also notoriously like they have like I hear that their like highway systems are notoriously bad. Like I, yeah, I don't know. Atlanta, Georgia and like a lot of Texas, particularly like Houston, Texas, mm. for whatever reason notoriously has awful public transportation and has just absolutely insane highway systems. So like I know this isn't again quite in Atlanta, but like also suburbs around Chicago don't have a lot of public transportation. Yeah. And like this seems like a similar situation of like, wow, before I could go places and now <laughs> I am restricted <laughs> probably by highways. <laughs> so many highways. But I also to bring your point into it, Allison, like these places are complicated, right? And this is again something that comes up in a lot of welcome project stories and in the way that you brought it up. We're like, how wonderful that hopefully this speaker got the opportunity to celebrate holidays to their culture or if they have a different religious experience to their religious experience that aren't like accounted for like so much of american like school systems and the way that like work is set up here is all around like even if you are not a christian i am not a christian it's still set up around a christian holiday structure Mm, so like you get you get time off to celebrate christmas depending where you're at you might get time off to celebrate easter that's a little more nebulous but like thanksgiving um which is just an american holiday as far as i'm aware I mean, Canadian Thanksgiving, but you know what I mean. So, like, that kind of thing. Like, all of these, like, American, more Christian holidays are, like, influenced by that calendar and that calendar system. It's not a lunar calendar. Like, a lot of other religions, like, including the other two Abrahamic religions, like, tend to prefer. Uh, So, like, how great that, like, this place, even though it was under-resourced and probably a not-in-my-backyard type of situation, being around so many more people who have... The same or a similar culture to you who probably practice similar like holidays and celebrations got to be together yeah and do that the other this is totally jumping topics but i was struck by the part of the story where he talks about never having heard of what Mm african-americans are and then not knowing that there were people who could have such black skin which I, I think from the perspective of a white american who's used to america looking at immigrants as the other or refugees as the other and typically the unwelcome other at least in the discourse that we often hear in american politics today like i find it this kind of irony in the fact that for him he has others as well i mean it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of like duh of course but i think sometimes when i think in the lens of america and probably progressive uh, framework, I'm so used to um, the dominant group in this, for us, like white people, othering everybody else. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's 
it's actually you kind of see the universal mm-hmm. nature of othering. And I don't even know that he's he's doing it uh, negatively here. Um, it's more like a kind of descriptive othering as opposed to uh, adding judgment and val- value judgment to it. Although I'm guessing based on his comment that his parents were racist, that he's seen he's seen that um, in addition. But it's I think it's useful to recognize that seeing somebody as other could be separated out from bias and power and oppression, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, yeah, uh, that, that it could come back more to this kind of curiosity. He doesn't use the word curiosity though. He uses the word shocking. So that sounds stronger than curiosity. I think maybe curiosity would come later. I'm guessing mm-hmm. based on the, based on the comment, but yeah, I mean, I think that talks about us getting, well, again, at least me, getting kind of stuck in, like, the progressive white American lens. Is like, the, even though you can definitely argue that due to things like imperialism and colonization uh, and due to things such as, like, I don't know, the hegemonic nature of, like, having to speak English if you want to mm. be in certain industries, even if you live in a place that does not speak English, um, like, that kind of thing, like, that white people, as a general rule, have, like, a lot of power over other cultures, whether they're there or not. Um, the g- dominant cultures in different countries still exist that are not white people. True, of course. Yeah, of so course. like, you know, there is othering and difference making in places where like, to us as Americans, a place might look more racially homogenous. Right. But that doesn't mean that those stratifications on other things, such as ethnicity, such as like being indigenous or not to that area, yeah. such as being a certain type of indigenous or not from that area, they have their own structures of, unfortunately, like we're, white people aren't special in that regard. <laughs> Everybody has their own structures of oppression and they do use them. This is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. We rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. Please consider supporting this station by visiting our website, wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax-deductible. We'd sure appreciate it. And this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, Willa Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And today we have been hearing from a storyteller that was interviewed in 2015 about his experiences growing up outside of Atlanta as a refugee from Afghanistan. And is there anything else that either of you want to say about the first story before we play the second, which has your favorite word in the title, Willow? (laughs) (laughs) So we can see like what you think of how your understanding of that term fits with his experience. (laughs) I think we should jump into it. All right, this one is titled Assimilating to a New Culture. I think one of the greatest things about coming into a new culture and assimilating to it is the fact that you actually understand your culture better. So at first, when I, uh, you know, when I was going to school and I grew up in, 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 in the United States and I began to learn English as well and I started assimilating to the culture of uh, the United States, 
I think I felt a little bit worldly. I felt I was better than my parents because I knew more and I would just tell them in front of their face, I know more about this subject than you do. But I think recently I've begun to learn that I don't want to feel so worldly. I, th I know I've begun to move away from vanity uh, and, and try to learn as much as I can. So I want to observe more than I conclude. I think, yeah, education is probably, the, again, the biggest reason why I felt like I had more to say than my parents. And even today, a lot of times I would have arguments with them about religion because I'm no longer a Muslim. Uh, and so we would have a lot of arguments. And the way I argue at a certain point, the way he argues back, we, you know, there's misunderstandings there as well. And so I feel, sometimes I feel like, okay, yeah, my parents you know, are not as smart as I am. But I think I, I, I'm still struggling with moving away from feeling like that, from thinking that, that my parents are dumb and I'm smart. You know, I, don't want, I don't want to feel like that because you know, I, I still want to learn as much as I can because I, mean, I think they can teach me a lot about Afghanistan, which I don't know much, and I really want to learn that. And I always go back to my mom and ask her, well, what was your childhood like? You know, I, you know, uh, what did you do? And I always enjoy her stories as well. As a freshman, I think Christmas break for my freshman year, when I came back, I started... Again, I started to see some of the superstition, and I started to judge it at, at that point. Because for a long time, you know, there was there's this one superstition where you're not allowed to clip your nails at night. And for a long time, I followed that. There's another one that when you're going going to sleep, uh, say your prayer, or you say the Islamic creed, and then you you, you blow the demons around from from, from all the, from the four corners of your room. And so I, I would do that. And even when I became an atheist for a time, I would still do that subconsciously because then I wasn't thinking, I was thinking, why, why can't I get away from this? So it was, you know, it was, uh, it developed within me. Uh, but I started to realize these things and I thought, do these really matter? Who am I doing it for? And I think one of the biggest things that really made a decision for me that I was, I could no longer be a Muslim was the fact that I was a Muslim for my parents because it pleased my parents that I was a Muslim. I never really believed in God. I hated praying five times a day. And I, my God, I tried as much as I could not to fast on, on, on Ramadan. Uh, uh, so I think that was why I was, I was doing it for the wrong reasons. And when you're educated, when you read more, and I read the Quran as well in translation, which I never did, and it was forbidden to read in the translation with, among my parents, They'd, you know, uh, because it has to be in Arabic, and it's not the Quran if it's not in, in Arabic. So when I read it in the translation, I saw some of the very offensive passages in there. I started to realize, you know, I, I, I can't possibly be among people who advocate for beating women, for uh, neglecting education, uh, for s scaring children uh, into submission, into believing that, you know, uh, certain things are right because just because the Quran says so, so you're not allowed to imagine a certain, you're not allowed to ask a certain question. Uh, so because of that, I moved away from it. I, I, I love my parents and I love my family as well. Uh, but I think we've learned to differentiate between intellectual interests uh, and just the fact that we're a family. I mean, we always, to each other, we always say, you know, I, yeah, I'm your son. You know, you're always going to love me. And I always say, mom, you're my mother. You know, I don't, I don't care where I go. You're my mother. I will always love you. Uh, so we have to differentiate between that because we are separating. And I think the fact that I am no longer a Muslim still, they, they just don't like it. Not only, not only because 
of how they're seen in, in, in the community, but also because they have this belief that I'm damned for all eternity because I'm no longer a Muslim. And so my mom, uh, I think, presumptuously sometimes says, you will never be successful in life because you're, you're not a Muslim. God will never help you. Uh, I mean, in these, these are certain things, sometimes I feel you know, a little bit very, very melancholy because she, she says these, or even my dad. Uh, but again, I try as much as I can not to move into that subject as much with them, to just differentiate and try to talk about different things because I, I don't want them to, to, to just think that they, I don't care about them. This is WVLPLP 103.1 FM and streaming live online at WVLP.org. And this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Chudy, Reagan Skaggs, Willa Walsh. Today we're talking about stories from um, one of our storytellers who grew up in Atlanta from the time he was two and his parents are from Afghanistan, so a part of a refugee uh, movement here to the States um, when, he was, when he was a young child. So um, this is our second story from, from this storyteller today. And um, I don't know, do you want to start again, Reagan, maybe with what jumps out at you? This is incredibly relatable for me. <laughs> like his whole story and like the issue of like, and obviously, like it's not the same part of his is like language barriers or like a lack of one on his part versus like maybe his parents it's implied at least in the last story that maybe they aren't as fluent as him um and they didn't receive like the same education so like he has like a different educational experience and then like a very different spiritual experience and this is something that i again as a white lady a monolingual white lady who comes from like a monolingual monolingual family um have really struggled with, like, in regards to, like, the relationship that me and my mom have. Like, my mom is very intelligent. She's not, like, stupid. But she's not book smart. Um, And she, you know, she dropped out of high school to have me. She didn't get to finish that. Um, You know, and so, like, these, the types of conversations he's describing having, the types of interactions he's describing happening, and, like, the hurt but the wanting to not be hurt and the the feeling guilty for feeling like maybe you're smarter than your parents, yeah. but also like trying not to have that idea. Cause like it is vain. And then like, you don't want to be that person like that. I feel that very much. And that is something that I struggle with a lot. Yeah. I think in that part of the story, it sounds like he's realizing that youthful superiority mm-hmm. is a judgment that he could actually separate out from um, the experience and realize that he and his parents are going to approach subjects differently. And that doesn't have to mean parents are stupid. I'm smart. Mm -hmm. It's going to mean parents are coming at this from, (laughs) you know, first generation. Well, I guess they would be refugees, right. And he would be first generation American kind of thing. And that, that divide has created different ways of understanding what, is right in the world or what matters and we can get down to the part about him leaving islam um as we talk but willa what stood out to you from (laughs) the part about him leaving Islam? (laughs) (laughs) perfect segue then well i don't know i really i loved what he said when he was talking about like the this like ritual of blowing away the demons like before bed like I don't know. It's like I my mom used to tell me like okay, back up. I used to 
pray every night before bed as a child. And then my mom would tell me things like, okay, like there's a heaven and all the people who have died are constantly watching you. And like, I am, I would say that I'm like an atheist now, like I'm not Christian, but like, oh my gosh, do I (laughs) feel like I'm being watched all the time? Like that's, it's a ludicrous statement, but like, and I think that's so interesting because it's like, do I believe that? No. But do I still feel that? Like Mm. watched? Yes. Oh yeah. I see what you're saying. Like you can't. You can't undo the conditioning. Yeah, yeah. And so, oh, I love, I loved him saying that. Mm. Oh, I really felt that. What stuck out to you, Allison? Where are you at? Well, I mean, I think with this story in particular, it's this way that having a different set of experiences from your parents, whatever might cause that. Like he's talking about it in terms of education. It also has to be other things that maybe is related to education, I guess, but like having more of his, his roots actually be American, mm-hmm. even if it's a, a specific kind of American experience. Cause we already talked about from the first story, Clarkston was a community, mostly of refugees, which is not, for example, typical American experience for someone like me growing up, um, in a white neighborhood. But it, so But I think there's this moment for most of us of like separating from our parents in some way, like because we start to question the conditioning um, or the values that our parents use to raise us. And that introduces this combat, (laughs) mostly at the adolescent, early college, uh, early 20 something stage. And then 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 you start to take stock of how you feel about the fact that you may or may not affiliate and connect with your parents in the same way that you used to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, it's so that there might be something, there might be something universal about that, but I, I do wonder if for, you know, refri- refugee children, if it's accentuated in some way, or I think about, this is something I've heard for first-generation college students that um, is also typical. Like, it can be hard to go home again. Mm-hmm. I think in a way that I, I had lots of fights with my mom that had to do with uh, my my worldview changing and how I wanted to interpret faith and religion, um, politics. But I didn't feel like I was going home and... I don't, well, I don't know now I'm saying that I'm like, what? Maybe I, did feel kind of, I mean, I always did feel different, I suppose, but I, I don't know. Like it didn't feel like I had, I had changed in such a way that I couldn't, well, shoot, now I'm talking myself, <laughs> I'm totally talking myself out of it. Cause I feel like as I, I mean, there was definitely a period in time when my mom and I couldn't talk to each other. Absolutely. Um, and then I think I, I had it much later than than the storyteller because he's he's probably in his early 20s when he's telling this I guess I don't know for sure if he did a, a sort of traditional trajectory with college but um he's already realizing as a senior I believe when we interviewed him that you know there's something about his attitude towards his parents that's problematic I did not realize that, <laughs> that until I was maybe in my 30s um so yeah, but I I do think that where he where he goes at the end of the story that there's something about the fact that they love each other mm-hmm. that is going to ultimately be a source of connection even as 
um, that connection is stressed. Yeah. So that's, I guess that's what's standing out to me from what I hear. Yeah. I don't know. For me, and it sounds, again, maybe I'm projecting because I find this to be a very relatable experience. (laughs) But, like, for me, I know that, and I don't know if this would fit in for you as well, Allison, but, like, I, even now, and I'm not in college anymore, um, but I am, you know, I moved out. I'm doing my adult life things. Um, and like for not just my mom, a lot of other key people in my family that are important to me. Like, it's like, I can feel myself becoming less palatable Mm. for the people that I love. I know that's a terrible (laughs) way to say it, but it really does. It it really feels like that though. Like I, I am becoming, and I don't dislike the things that I do. I like the things I do. That's why I do them. Um, and I believe very Like, I'm a very passionate person about the things that I feel are important. So I don't feel... If I thought I was doing something incorrect, I would try to correct it. But I I can feel myself, and I can feel that gap widening. And you, yeah, just like he's describing here, you just have to hope. Like, well, we love each other, so we have to make it work. Yeah, I, I don't know that it always goes this way but I do have 30 years on you. Um, And I feel like I've seen for both myself and my mom and my dad that there was definitely a time that I became unpalatable, (laughs) especially to my my mom, I think. And there's another comment he makes in here about how him leaving Islam is painful because of how his parents are judged by people in the community that they've lost one of their sons kind of thing. And I, mm-hmm. I, I think that that's probably part of the experience for my mom at times too. Like, what do people think of me because of who my daughter is kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that she really feels that way anymore, although she's not here to ask. So. <laughs> but there was this one, I remember, uh, so I would have been like probably in my forties and she was telling me a story about how, you know, this, person that this child who had grown up in in the church so she'd seen this child uh go from being a toddler to a a high school student and he was doing the orange hair thing and his parents were all freaking out and my mom had this sense of pride for like having raised someone and she could just be like um oh, I've been there, done that kind of feeling. And I was like, I see you, mom. (laughs) You know, so it changes and it can change in time. You know, and Mm -hmm. by that point too, like I was not as judgmental and asserting my superiority over her way of thinking in the world. So Mm -hmm. she could have, she could soften towards me. Right. And, um, but I do think there might be some, um, family situations, whether it's because of uh, being a refugee and then having a a child basically come up American, there, there might be rifts that really aren't able to be maintained, even though you say to each other how much you love you know, that love should still be this thing that keeps you connected. I, I don't know that it always is enough. Yeah. But, um, this is WVLP 103.1 FM. And we also are streaming live online at WVLP.org. We've sort of been looking at the story holistically. Is there anything else that jumped out that we ought to look at in, in detail? I don't know. I've like I, 
I'm trying to understand both of you and like your relationship with your parents and I feel like mine has always been like a little bit less I don't know I guess like you guys sound so nice about it like that you're like trying to like understand like your parents and I mean I feel like I understand why but it's like I don't know it's like I've always had this sort of like unpalatable fire that I've like never sort of been afraid to be like I don't know there's like there I've had screaming matches with my mom but it's like I feel right so that's fine like I don't know Mm -hmm. it's like I feel like I've always been non-palatable but like I don't know it's just like and like but I think I was fortunate and then it's like my dad's like NPR liberal guy so Mm -hmm. it's like you know it's like I could always sort of do that to him and it's like he'd be fine with it but I don't know it's like for me it's like my relationship changed so drastically when I went through college and I think one of the things that made it easier is that like I didn't have to have a sort of like religious break like you know it's like when I stop like when I stop being Christian and like maybe I'm like atheist I don't know what I am but I don't know it's like that was never like the string that kept us all together but it's like it did change so much and it's like I think I just wasn't prepared for that as a person and so I'm just thinking about like our storyteller and like not only is he having to sort of like have these conversations about um, religion with his parents and like have this experience where he's already felt this rift for so long growing up and like being an English speaker and feeling the, the, the differences between him and his parents. But at the same time, you'd like add adolescence onto that mm-hmm. too. And then sort of like, I don't know, just being kind of a, like a jerk maybe. <laughs> I was a jerk in high school. But like, I don't know, it's just like, it's so interesting how you can sort of piece together relationships past, I mean, for me, it's like 18. It's like, I don't know, it's like I'm with my parents up until 18, and so we just had a sort of thing going on. And then it's like, for me, it's like, boom, my dad and stepmom left right at 18. So it's just like our whole dynamic had to be different. And so when I go there now, it's like it, our relationship looks nothing like what it did when I was in high school. It's completely different now, but they're actually, it's great. It's actually, it's very different, but it's really nice now. But I don't know. I'm just thinking about like all of the things that made it easier for me to be less palatable <laughs> as a child. And, like, but then I didn't have the religion on top of that. And I didn't really necessarily have all those separations from my parents. So it made it easier. And I'm just thinking about like all of the things that stack up for him and how he still had to navigate that. It's like a lot more. Yeah, I think um, this doesn't come up in this story so much as other ones that he tells. But there's um, he's a an intellectual um, and an artist. Like he he wants we we learn this in other stories. He wants to write Af- Afghani literature um, or study Afghani literature and and then participate in that, even if he's in exile or an expat. And that sense of uh, being an intellectual is very different than what his parents hope and expect for him. Mm-hmm. They want him to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. So you go to college so that you learn the science so that you get to have that career. And then he talks about how like his parents just don't understand like what would it mean to study literature? Like what is that? Yeah. I don't know how that relates or not, Willow, to your what you're thinking about but I feel like for this storyteller, part of his superiority is coming out of a kind of defensiveness that he needs to help his parents understand a way of being that they don't have a concept of, mm. you know? Yeah. 
I guess, I don't know, is that the same thing as what you meant by unpalatable? Like, you, as you, Reagan, become unpalatable to your family, is it that they don't have a concept to make sense of of either, like, is it your appearance or your beliefs or your choices? It is all of the okay. above. Uh, <laughs> Alex, I'll take all three. Um, so what it, for me, what it is, is not so much that they don't have a concept, is that they have a very... Um, negative concept already. Most of my family do not know that I'm gay. They have a very strong opinion of what it means to be gay. Um, They have a very strong opinion. Like, one of my first political... So, when I was... The first election I remember being aware of, I was in, like, sixth grade, is the 2008 Obama... Or I think I was Mm -hmm. 12... Yeah, the 2008 Obama election. That's the first one that I was, like, cognizant for. Like, you know, I was becoming a human being, kind of. Like, not really children or people, but um, having that uh, concept that things in the world that are not me, that don't involve me directly, exist and happen. One of my most prominent memories of that is, like, sitting there and listening to my uncle. Like, he truly believed this. And I think that if you pushed him, he would say this about other folks, too. This isn't him being belligerent. This wasn't him being in what he thought was unkind. But he's, he, I listened to him for an hour and a half talk about how Obama was the Antichrist. Hmm. And this is the end of the world. Um, last time I went home for Christmas, my aunt told me that um, all liberals are going to hell. <laughs> and um, when they, there was, there's always every year, at least in my family, I don't know if this is everybody's family. They're like, oh, they're going to everybody's going to get in a fight and cuz also part of christianity or at least the independent baptist and evangelical christianity that i grew up with is like a very big and this seems to be prevalent otherwise as a very big emphasis on the end of the world and how that is secretly a good thing mm. um so a lot of christians will like pray or advocate for things that they feel are signs in the bible that are very bad yeah that are objectively terrible things like war and famine and disease um, on top of other things to happen. And so, like, my aunt went on this huge thing about how it's good that all this stuff is happening because that means, like, the nuclear war, like, bombs are going to happen and then the world will end and then the rapture is going to happen. Like, these are the mm-hmm. kinds of conversations and these are the kinds of, like, worldviews that a lot of people that are important to me that helped raise me uh, have. Mm-hmm. So I'm unpalatable simply... Because I don't have those worldviews, one, which they kind of know and kind of tolerate, um, but they don't know that I am a lot of the things that they they truly feel are devilish, just like the speaker um, Mm. describes. Like, his mother truly believes he is going to go to hell because he is not a Muslim. He is eternally, like, damned because he is not a Muslim. It is a similar trek. Yeah, and that you're your life while you are on earth won't be blessed or successful because you don't have a right relationship with God in this case, Allah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I think it's interesting because this storyteller is using the term superstition when he's talking about the, the Islamic practices. And I, I haven't heard people talk about those particular practices. So I'm not sure if it's a universal belief or practice within the faith or if like Christianity, you know, there are so many 
what we call them denominations in Christianity, that has to be true of Islam as well. And so, you know, like, would that, the blowing the four demons from the corners be a typical religious practice? Or would it actually have maybe cultural roots to the um, village that his parents came up through in Afghanistan, which maybe would even be more older and more indigenous than Islam. I don't know. But he's thinking of it as superstition, which I hear as a, a judgment still. And so even as he's trying to work with and work away from believing that he's smarter than his parents who are ignorant, by which I think he means uncultured, you know, sticking to like the old ways uh, like it, it's like, okay, you haven't gotten yet beyond a hundred percent beyond there's, there's no place in your thinking yet for that to be a, a relevant practice for someone else. Even if you yourself have, have moved, have moved away from it insofar as you can move away from conditioning, mm-hmm. <laughs> thinking back to what your point Willow about still being watched. <laughs> Final thought before we close today. And also, families are complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's as good a statement as any to end on. Uh, before we head out today, please check out WVLP's full schedule of radio shows at WVLP.org. We highly recommend Morning Black, which airs live every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. And then again, Thursdays at 2 and Fridays at 9 Black stands for Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge, and it focuses on the concerns and issues that impact underrepresented communities of color. Um, They provide a platform for discussing the issues and problems that inhibit equality and justice in the African-American community. So that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are also open for business at their locations downtown on Lincoln Way. Visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marachna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find us online at welcomeproject.balbo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support WVLP and our show, you can make a donation by going to wblp.org support.